exciting. You're listening to CITR FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. And who do we have on the line right now? Hello, are you there? I am. Who are you? I'm Louise. Oh, what did we just hear, Larice? Who are you, Larice? Like, what did we just hear? From 1969? Yes, you heard this. Oh, you beautiful child. I wrote it and produced it. They were a great band. And you are going to be heading to the Emerald in Vancouver next Friday night. What exactly will you be playing? And will we be hearing some spiv, like, right off the top? 
Well, I don't want to give all the secrets away, you know, uh, Nardwa, so I want you to come and see what I'm singing. I, I don't want to be too coy, but there will be a lot of favorites that uh, I will be singing. Now, you are known as Laurie Marshall, but also pseudonyms, Laurice. Why? Why are there so many pseudonyms? Pseudonyms. Oh, it was also Paul St. John. And Gabriel Ratchets as well. And that is really strange. I don't know what happened there. That, that's a real mystery, Sandra. <laughs> I don't know how they came up with Gabriel Ratchets, but this is me. I love the name Larice, but as well, Larice refers, if you type Larice into the dreaded internet, it refers to the fetus of a rabbit. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I just it up myself. It's hysterical. Well, what happened was I was, going to, uh, I was going to leave Canada and go to the U.S., and I thought, you know, I want to dream up a name, a nice name, something different. So I thought, why not? Well, I'm Lawrence. That's my real name. So I thought, Louise, how about that? And so I went to Hollywood, and of course, when I announced myself in Hollywood as Louise, they said, oh, yeah, it's very French, isn't it? I said, oh, yes, yes, it's uh, very French. <laughs> what pseudonyms have you used over the years? Like, I've mentioned a few, but what have you used from the top? Uh, well, you know, all of them. Well, you've got Laurie Marshall, you've got Larice. Um, I've also done Larice Daniels. That's my writing name. If you look on um, any of my any of my um, CD CD labels, you'll see often Larice Daniels, there, and that is who I'm registered with with BMI. You know, I'm a BMI writer. That's where you get the checks, right? Well, I wish. Uh, I owe them quite a lot of money because um, I was signed up with BMI and uh, um, a manager paid for an advance, so I didn't stop paying them back for a while. A lot of money went to other people. It didn't go to me, you know. I'm sure a lot of artists of my period have uh, experienced that one. <laughs> now, Laurice, you're playing next Friday night at the Emerald as, long, as well as with fashionism, uh, Josh's band, you are Laurice. I was curious, though, with spaceships, like, shouldn't there be more sightings of spaceships out there? Shouldn't there be more sightings? It's so funny, you know, um, I was doing an interview with um, uh, one of the Vancouver magazines this morning with a gentleman there. He's a big UFO, too. And um, we were both talking about that and saying, yes, there should be, and there are. I mean, there are. It's just that uh, it's not officially recognized. They don't want, they don't, they really do not want to admit that there are other things in the universe besides us. And don't you think, Nardwa, that in this big multiverse, it's the height of arrogance to think we're the only living creatures? In the multiverse? Well, I think also with cell phones, like you have the capability to have HD and in some cases 4K video, and yet there yeah. aren't. How come, like with all these uh, capturing devices, we haven't captured any? Well, we don't know whether people have because a lot of people are very reticent, very reticent to. Uh, to admit that they've seen something because people say, oh, you're just cookie. People
people are going to rediscover you next Friday night in Vancouver. When did you last play Vancouver? Well, actually, I played Vancouver in 1977 uh, at a club in Vancouver, and I was doing, believe it or not, Barbara Streisand's material. (laughs) So people are going to rediscover you next Friday night at the Emerald with with fashionism. Now, it all started, this rediscovery, with Robin Wills of Pure Pop. Could you explain about that? That's right. Well, what happened was that Robin uh, contacted me and said, are you, you know, are you the Larisse of... uh, of various various records, they, which when Christine comes around was his big favorite, and I went to his website and I couldn't believe all these records of mine that he had, you know, on the website, pictures of them, and uh, he wants to know more about me. He was re- he's a really nice guy, and uh, I I told him who I was. He wrote up a wonderful article, interviewed me, wrote me a wonderful article, and then said. There's a record company in the U.S. that really wants to release your own material on vinyl. And uh, this is 2011. I said, vinyl? I thought it was a joke, you know. (laughs) Vinyl? I thought, whoa. So anyway, um, the record company got in touch with me, Harry House of Mighty Mouth Music. is a marvelous, marvelous man. I mean, he really is great. Uh, Ethical, generous and really truthful, which is, <laughs> that's quite, that's quite uh, something in the record business, let me tell you. Well, he wore me down, and um, he released the Best of Larisse Volume 1. Now, I was curious, the- just let me interrupt you for a second. How does one wear down Larisse? How do you get worn down? Like, how did Mighty Mouth Records wear you down? Asked me, said, I really, really want to release it. Well, on vinyl, I thought, you know, this guy's crazy. Why would you release something on vinyl? You know, um, I wasn't up to speed, I suppose. But the thing is, you know, um, vinyl in 2011 isn't like vinyl in 2016, is it? But how do you win over Larice? Like, how did he win over you eventually? I'll tell you why. He was, because I could tell on the phone from various conversations with him, he was a really, really decent guy. And I felt in the end that, yes, I could trust him. And you know what? Let me tell you, Nadra, I don't have a formal contract with, um, with Harry, and I, 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 just, uh, I, I just let them release my material. Uh, they've been wonderful to me, absolutely wonderful, so supportive. In fact, Harry has my name tattooed on his hand. Uh, that is Howie, then. That is Howie. Howie. Uh, I, 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 I am just, like, completely blown away because did he put a photo of his hand on your Facebook page? Yes, he did. And, you know, um, he came up to see me when I appeared at Milk Crate Records. You know, my, my video, Larice Live at uh, Milk Crate Records, well, he showed it me on his hand. He said, look, I've got I tattooed in my hand. I was so shocked. I was just shocked. I couldn't believe it. You have made it. You have truly made it to have a tattoo, like somebody to have your name tattooed. Isn't 
that something? I mean, what, I mean, isn't that something, Melville? Uh, well, actually, I did know a guy, and maybe you encountered him as well, who got Pete Best to autograph his arm, and then he got a tattoo made out of it. I know. Isn't that weird? And then he got the Pete Best tattoo removed. Poor Pete Best. <laughs> Oh, it's so sad. Did you ever encounter Pete Best at all? No, I didn't, no. <laughs> I was curious. Yeah, I mean, I've, a, I've met a lot of rock artists, and I've met a lot, lot of disco artists and all the rest. You know, um, I was a punk rock artist and a disco artist, so naturally I met a lot of these people. Uh, did you keep the masters that Howie released as the best of Larice Volume 1? Did you keep all the masters, and were they released at the time, or were they just demos? No, uh, they weren't demos. They were records, but the thing is, I didn't have most of the masters. I, I had some, and some I lost. Um, when I was in Toronto, before I left for the States, live i used to live in toronto um a lot of material a lot of um a lot of tapes uh were stolen and masters were stolen from me i know who's stolen but i can't prove it uh, it's just unfortunate so did you have copies hard copies like were was everything on the best of volume one and two larice released oh not a, oh, Oh, but you mean before? Oh, no, 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 never. Oh, except Chris, uh, when Christine comes around and um, I'm going to smash her face in. So why did you record those songs? Were they demos for other artists? Oh, no, 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 no. I meant to release them myself. I just didn't have the money. So how many years did they go between you recording them and them being released? Well, up to... Uh, uh, apart from Christine, um, what are we talking? How many years? From We're talking about from like 1972, 1973 to 2011. Who aside from Mighty Mouth Records has found you? Has anybody approached you as well as Mighty Mouth, like before or after? No, no, never. Honestly, never. No. And you know what? It, it's... Uh, in a way, Nadwa, I will admit, it's been a very lonely life. I've had to, I wanted to do things my own way, and I paid a very heavy price for it, and that was one of the prices I paid. But eventually, how we hooked up with you, and it turned out all for the better. It, it, oh, it, I mean, uh, I can't believe it. I mean, I just, uh, I'm having a ball, I really am. <laughs> I mean, um, I'm writing, uh, you know, I've got a new album out, Gaydar, and I will be featuring some songs from the album, but I have a ballad album I'm releasing later this year of ballads I've recorded throughout my career, and new ones, and then I've got another rock album uh, scheduled for next year, and also, I believe, The Best of Larice Volume 3. And people can catch you next Friday night in Vancouver at The Emerald, which with fashionism as well is josh from fashionism going to be releasing a seven inch by you as well i have no idea i I'm, i haven't i haven't met josh yet 
uh, I'm calling him tomorrow, but I'm sure we'll talk in Vancouver. Now I you mean, uh, that would be nice. <laughs> I mean, um, I love uh, I love making records. I love uh, and I love helping other bands. I'm helping a band right here right now called the Geek Tones. They're a punk rock band in um, Kelowna, and I've written a song called Space Case for them. They'll be featuring it, I believe, tomorrow night at Milk Crate Records. That is amazing, Larice, that you are writing these songs and people are accepting them, but also Hunks and the Punks, a modern band, turned down one of your songs? Turned down? The band. (laughs) One of my songs? Oh, no. They turned down a bunch of songs, which are now on Gator. I mean, they really did. What happened, I'm going to explain this on on Friday, but um, my record company asked me to write songs for Hunks and the Punks. And I kept, we kept sending them song after song after song. No, they didn't like piano. No, they didn't like it. Like, they couldn't have taken the piano out, right? Uh, they didn't like this. They didn't like that. And then they went on tour. And I was left with all these tracks. So I uh, remixed them, wrote some new ones, and there was Gator. There was Gator by Larice. Did you use a Porta sound? What exactly did you record the songs on? Was it a Porta sound? Do you use a Porta sound now? What is the Larice setup if people purchase Gator? Oh well, um, I have. I also, um, well, I have my own uh, uh, computer studio, of course. And uh, actually, uh, I've used an, an old Yamaha. Um, a synthesizer that I've had since 1990, 1990. I've had since 1990. And I used that for uh, some of the backing tracks. One of the songs on Gaydar is Busted. Now, you talk about the local bar. What is the local bar in Kelowna like? Oh, well, you're talking about the Crazy Cow Supper Club in downtown Kelowna, right? Busted. What is the song Busted about? You talk about... I'm releasing the video of that uh, this next week. It is an amazing song on Gaydar. What is the cow in Kelowna? What is it like? Oh, it's wonderful. It's it's my sitting room. (laughs) Now, you were involved in much proto-punk like Grudge, when Christine oh, yeah. comes around 1973, and we will get, we will, we, we will play that at the end of the interview. But I was yeah. curious, like, when Christine comes around, Christine, I'm going to smash your face in, your eyeballs, I'm oh. going to chuck them. Did Christine hear the song in 1973? Yeah, you, but do you know the story behind the song? It's and... Amazing. and was it really Christine or was it Chris? Like, how do we know it wasn't Chris? Oh, no, it was Christine. Did she ever uh, hear the song? Oh, I, you know, I, I just don't know whether she ever did hear the song. Um, I don't know whether she was into punk rock. Yeah, but uh, in 19... <laughs> In, in 1973, not many people were into punk rock. Like, when it was actually released in 73, there was no punk rock. You invented it, Larice. Well, uh, you know, I, I don't know whether I did, but 
I certainly was um, one of the first. In fact, after the record was released, my my father wouldn't speak me for speak to me for weeks afterwards. He said, "To think a son of mine would write a song like that, and then I'm going to smash your face in on the B side." I mean, he was just fit <laughs> to be tied. Now that was co-written with your buddy Simon, and upstairs you would hear. Christine and she would come down and you would be scared you would like leap out of the kitchen well what happened was every time I went there there was a knock on the door and there she would come in and just sit there she just sat there Simon and I couldn't speak to each other it was just unbelievable I mean I don't know why she was there I think she had a crush on Simon but you know Simon was engaged to a very lovely lady who eventually married married so the next day, we drove, were driving across London Bridge, and we, we wrote the song. What? And then, after that, what? I, mean, I never thought anybody would take me seriously. We met this guy in Tim, Tim Pan Alley, which was the, you know, the record center of London in Soho at the time. And everything you've heard about Tim Pan Alley is true. And this guy happened to know this era. Prudence was really lovely. And she was a very wealthy lady, and she couldn't wait to get us in the studio so I could record the songs. Was Peter Frampton on it? Yes, Peter Frampton was on. Um, he was on both. He was on both both songs. Yes. Have you had any contact with him at all? No, and I didn't really know who he was. I mean, we had some session. Uh, you know, we had some session people there. He did introduce himself to me. But, of course, I didn't realize how big he would become. So you wrote this song when Christine comes around, and then it gets banned by the BC, the BBC? Oh, God, everything was banned by the BBC. They couldn't wait to ban that one. <laughs> you know, um, British artists, one of the main reasons I left Britain was because of the BBC. Um, do you know this? Uh, 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 well, please explain. Uh, they, they, no. lo- they uh, well, br- uh, just like any other country, the BBC loved every country at that time except Britain, right? Correct, exactly. If you were a British artist, if you weren't on Mickey Mouse Rack label and you weren't on Elton John's Rocket label, forget it. As a British singer, you would not get any airing on the BBC. They played, I don't know how much American stuff. There have been a lot of newspaper articles about this. Period. It was a very, very difficult period for British artists. And you know, Spirit, that record, I didn't know how to tell the guy that the promotion guy from Pie Records just was leaving the records on the doorstep of the producer, you know, in at the BBC. I was so angry with what he did to Spirit that I got a placard one day and I marched up and down outside the BBC for a whole day saying... BBC unfair to British art, British artists. Where did Christine gonna get her face smashed in? Get airplay? Where did it get airplay? And how many were sold? And when did you discover that it was a punk rock anthem? I never realized it until Robin Wills told me. I had a no idea. I was the darling of the, you know, the deleted, <laughs> deleted uh, punk rock glam songs. <laughs> Never re- I never even knew. 
How many were created of Christine in 73? How many did you make? You know, I think Cyril did a run of about 100. But I think, I don't know what happened to the originals. Now, Simon does have an original copy. I do know that. Um, but um, I don't know where the rest of the original copies went. I really don't. What was the role of Prudence exactly? She had funded other records before? I suppose she had, yes. She was, uh, she was a wonderful person. She loved my writing. She loved my artistry. And uh, she really wanted to do it. But I, I don't know whether she'd ever dabbled in the music business before. But uh, Cyril persuaded her, <laughs> as Cyril would. <laughs> And you can actually witness Larice live next Friday night at the Emerald. And if anybody has any questions for Larice, it is 604-822-2487. That is 604-UBC-CITR. And we will also have a special reward for you hanging on and listening to this interview. And if you want to check what Larice is like... You can type in Larice live at Milk Crate Records, and that is an entire show of him in Kelowna. Is that indicative of what you're going to be doing next Friday night? Well, yes, it's, it's, uh, it is similar. I have added some favorite songs, and I've had a few requests, Nardwa, so I'm going to be doing those too. And can I remind your audience as well? that we've made some wonderful videos of a lot of the songs. They're on YouTube. I mean, individual um, individual videos. They're really, really good, particularly uh, Flying Sources of Landed, The Dark Side of Your Face. They're very, very popular videos. And we've got tons more because we've got more albums coming. How should people search for you, Larice? Like your Larice band? Like, how should people search in YouTube? Oh, I just put Larice YouTube, and if you put Larice YouTube, you'll get all these pictures, as you know, coming up at the top. Uh, and you can see uh, pictures from my various videos uh, on, the, at the to- on the top there. Did you do any live gigs in the U.K.? You had a residency at oh, one time? Yeah. Oh, yes, I, I was in a band, and... Oh, I did lots of live gigs, and I, I, uh, I used to perform at the Royal Oak, which was a very, very rough-and-tumble uh, uh, club, um, actually bar, in uh, West London. Um, and uh, if they didn't like you, they, they really threw bottles at you. It was like a working men's club, like they have in the north of England, but it was in London. And uh, they loved me there. I, I, I performed there every week. And as I said, I was in various bands. What was the name of the bands? I don't remember. But I was in a band at university, and they kicked me out. Because I was into, it's so funny, I was into Wilson Pickett and Dusty Sprinkle at the time, and they were into, you know, the weird and wonderful, you know, um, um, various rock bands at the time, and I didn't understand those kind of rock bands at the time. Did you ever meet Bowie? or Bolin, or Joe Meek, or Brian Epstein? Oh, I met Joe Meek. Crazy, crazy man. I mean, the man, I don't know whether he was on drugs. I don't know whether he was on drugs or what. But talk about a nasty piece of work. That guy gets the cake. I went to see him with with my girlfriend at the time, Elizabeth, and I can tell you, he was just 
horrid. In what way and what year was that? Because he died like 64. Like what year did you enter music and what brought you to Joe Meek and what made him so I horrid? Saw him, I saw him in 65. So I think he committed suicide or... Oh, I'm not surprised. I mean, with a personality like his, you know, I'm not a bit surprised. I will never forget my meeting with him as long as I live. He was just horrible. Oh, what exactly happened? Laurice meets Joe Meek. Uh, he walked up to us. You know, Elizabeth was standing with me. And he walked up to me because we'd asked for an insta, you know, uh, a meeting with him. And he just ranted into me and said he wasn't interested in me at all. And he, wasn't, uh, he didn't want to hear my, my music. And I was a piece of SHIT, etc., uh, etc. Et and then he crashed off and he was... Wearing some kind of, uh, I don't know, house coat or it looked like a dress or something. I mean, he was just, just Looney Tunes. <laughs> no, Larice, why did he call you a piece of shit? Had he, had you even released anything at that time? Had he heard your music? Like, did he just outburst he that? He wasn't interested. I think he was so high on drugs or whatever that he, he didn't know what he was doing. I suppose I should feel sorry for him, but. It's difficult. Because <laughs> he has gone on to have kind of like mythological status. Like there is even uh, like a, a, a musical about him. Uh, maybe there is, but I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I just, it was just awful. I mean, uh, I, he's a very bad memory as far as I'm concerned. And what brought you to him initially? Oh, because, I mean, he was a great producer. And I wanted to meet him. Uh, you know, I wanted to meet him. I thought that maybe he'd like to record me, etc. But I didn't get to first base. What La London transvestite club turned you on to disco? Who told you about that? Oh, that's amazing. Who I don't know the name of the club, and I can't remember. Um, what happened was, this is before the disco era, when I was in London... I used to go to a transvestite club in London, the centre of London. It was a small club, but it was very exciting. They used to play music that could actually dance to. If you know, at that time, there wasn't such a thing as dance music. And every time they put Stevie Wonder, Sign, Seal, Deliver... In fact, I was telling my partner, Larry, uh, last night about it, because um, that's the, that's the favourite tune of, uh, I think, Barack Obama. They always play it when he comes on, you know, at a convention or something. And every time they put that song on, there was a stampede to the dance floor. It was the, the only really danceable song. I mean, it heralded disco. It really was the forerunner of disco. I love that song. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. And you are Larice playing next Friday night at the Emerald in Vancouver with fashionism. What do you look like? Louise, what do you look like? Or what did you look like then? I look like the person they've been showing at me around Vancouver. I know people would be in shock. I mean, that was taken when I was 27 years old, right? Well, you have to switch those figures around. I'm now 72, you know. But they don't have to wheel me on the stage just yet, you know. <laughs> well, what did you look like back then? And what do you look like now? Like a lot of heavy makeup back then? Like what did you look like? Oh. Oh, I don't wear heavy makeup. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, well, um, 
you know, I didn't wear anything then. Of course not. I had, uh, I was nice, slim, good-looking young guy. Um, and now I'm uh, not a not a so slim, <laughs> uh, older-looking guy. I mean, I don't um, I don't walk around with makeup and stuff like that. Where do you I get? Mean, where do you well, get? Where do you get your outfits? Like the new flying saucer outfit is amazing. Where do you get your outfits? What was I wearing in flying saucers? I'm trying to remember what I was wearing. Which top? Oh, the top of the sparkles. Oh, I got that from. Oh yes, I got that from a vintage store. That is amazing. Like that really looks. Uh, now, Gabriel Ratchet's Dark Side of Your Face. We mentioned that is one of the names you use or you were given. What do you remember about that song, Dark Side of Your Face, from 69? Well, um, I was recording in, I was recording at the Abbey Road Studios, the Beatles studio in uh, London years ago, and I'd been recording a lot of songs for my... Um, for my, for a publisher actually in London, and my voice was shot. It was like 3 a.m. in the morning, and I could didn't feel I could sing another note. And the um, young Cockney um, uh, recording engineer put this backing track on and said, uh, "Get on, Laurice, you know, give it a go." And I said, "Oh, I can't, I can't. I use my best diva voice and said, I can't, I can't, I can't." He said, oh, go on, you can do it. So I looked at him, you know, he was rather sweet and cute and young, and I thought, okay, I'll do it just for him. So I did. I did it in one take, and I didn't think anything about it. And then years later, Robin Wills sends me this MP3 saying, this is Gabriel Rogers, it sounds like you. And well, it was me. <laughs> and, you know, we, we put it on uh, volume two, Best of Larisse Volume 2. It's the most popular song on the album. Who was in your band at that time? Who? Well, that was, I think that was session musicians. Do you remember any of them? No, no, I don't. I was set, those were session musicians. I'm sorry. I can't say there was a star, you know, a budding star among them. Not like Peter Frampton was. No. no, I mentioned... I'll tell, you, I'll tell you this, though. Uh, there is something I do want to tell you. Um, on um, Boston City, you know my ballad, Boston City, on Volume 2? You've seen the video, no doubt. Um, that was one of the very first tracks that ever used the Mellotron. The Mellotron was the forerunner of the string synthesizers of today, and the move, it, it uh, preceded the Moog synthesizer did you use it at abby uh, did you use it like john lennon's was it john lennon's mellotron uh no actually this mellotron was at i think it was valley um valley recording studios in london i was recording some uh i was recording some songs for ronnie scott who was a famous publisher in london at that time some of my own songs which he very kindly released to me, by the way, before I left for Canada. And um, they put the Mellotron on it, and of course it changed the whole timbre of the songs. It's wonderful. 
And we will hear that when we end the interview and we are talking live now to Larice, who is playing in Vancouver next Friday night with Fashionism at the Emerald. Alive, Larice Tune, and we will hear to end the interview, we will hear a bit of Boston City as well. I was curious, though, I mentioned a lot about flying saucers. You love saucers. You have flying saucers have landed by Paul St. John in 73. You have a spaceship lover by Paul St. John. And you have disco spaceship. What is the difference between the three? You love spaceships. Well, um, you know, I've always been a big sci-fi buff ever since I was a boy. I just love sci-fi, and I love the fact... I was in the Astronomical Society when I was, like, in my teens, you know, at school. And uh, I've always had a great interest in space. I mean, my my favorite series is Star Trek. I love Star Trek. I just love it. My favorite is Voyager, and then Star Trek Next Generation, and then the original uh, Star Trek series. I've got them all. But my interest in it, that, I've always, well, I'll tell you something I've never told anybody before. I came from a very dysfunctional family. And one night when I was in my teens, it was a summer night, it was dark, and it was starry. And I will never forget walking over to the little park which was right next to where we lived. It was a very beautiful area. And I sat down on the seat all alone and looked up at the stars. I will never, ever forget this, Nardois. I just wished for a spaceship to come down and let me board it and take me away from this world. That's how, that's how I felt at the time. I've never forgotten that. And I think part of that came across in the disco spaceship because I wanted to flip it over to the optimistic side of life, you know? Who was the backup band on Spaceship Lover by Paul St. John? Was that Spiv? Who was Spiv? We began, you know, the Nardwar to Human Serviette show with, oh, you beautiful child. Who was yeah. Spiv? Were they a backup band? No, they weren't a backup band. They, had the, they were their own band. In fact, um, the B-side of Spiv is their own, uh, is their own song. Um, and uh, I was assigned them by um, Pi Records at the time because they didn't know. They had all these artists, and I have to tell you that the A&R department was a mess, and uh, they asked me if I would handle um, this band, and I, they said they need a hit. Um, so I wrote the song for them and produced it. But I'll tell you something. You should have heard them. You should have heard the demo. The demo was fantastic. And they wouldn't let me release the demo. They insisted on us going back into the studio. And we got a great production after that, but the demo was incandescent. It was incredible. Were they the backup band on Spaceship Lover? Um, I'm not sure. If you want the truth, I can't remember. It was a lot. No, let me see. Flying Source of Love. They may have been the back. I think they may have been the backing band for Flying Source of Landed and Spaceship Lover. How many songs, Larice, have you had banned? Oh, my God. A lot. Um, the Hotline, you know, my disco song, The Hotline, which was, uh, uh, has really become a kind of underground disco hit. Um, 
they uh, they banned that because they felt it was too black and too gay, and it was too. Um, it was uh, they felt the lyric was too. Um, Oh, uh, uh, too dubious, shall I say. Well, considering what the, they were playing, you know, I haven't offered the money, the, the radio station, uh, so they wouldn't play it. What was... It, it was a, uh, really, it was a, uh, I'm very proud of that record. What? But, um, but the, main, the main pop station in Los Angeles refused to play it. What was B&R Productions? B&R. That says like B and R. I think it says B and R on one of your records from the '60s or '70s. Who was the production firm that you were working for? Were you billed as Loris? Like, what exactly was your role at Pi? Well, I was a talent scout at Pi, and I also was part of Marble Arch Publishing. I was a writer with Marble Arch Publishing, which was Pi Records' publishing company. But I think that BNR may have been Air London, because um, I don't know whether you remember the Cook and Greenaway writing team. Um, they wrote I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, which was a very, very big hit worldwide. But they had a string of hits. And Roger Cook um, released, a, he produced a song for me for Air London, and they wanted me to sign with them. I refused to sign any contract. Um, and there's a reason behind that. If you have time, I'll tell you why. Actually, we do. Please tell us why, Larissa. All right. Okay. The record industry in the 70s was like 30 years behind the film industry. You remember in the film industry in the 40s, you, you had to sign a seven-year contract with them, and the, you were part of the studio. Well, that had all gone by the, by the 70s. But the record companies were lagging behind. You were expected to sign a seven-year contract with, it didn't matter what record label you were with, and with seven years of servitude, and they could bury you, and they did, because it only takes two artists to make money of a record label, at least in those days. The rest were tax write-offs, and I knew damn well that they wanted to bury me, and I wouldn't. I was offered seven contracts in one year. I turned them all down. I knew exactly what they were up to. If they really wanted to promote me, they would have offered me a lot more money. But there are many horror stories of artists signing contracts, so you did the right thing. Like, they did not own your material forever. It's, it's true, but the thing is this, you know... Um, there's always two sides to everything, and I'm glad that I didn't sign the contract, Nardwar, but I'm telling young people this. Be very careful. Be very careful what you sign and have a good lawyer. But the thing is, I did in the 70s. I paid a tremendous price for that. And also being gay and being a gay activist didn't help either. You were a talent scout for Pi Records. Now, Pi was home of the Kinks, early status quo, and many other bands. What was it like? Did you meet the Kinks? Did you meet status quo? Did you meet... I I, I met the Hollies. I met um, Pink Floyd. Uh, I attended some of the sessions on both of those. Um, I'm trying to think what other bands. There were lots of bands I attended sessions for because I was very friendly with a recording engineer at Abbey Road. And uh, a lot of material I did, um, I'll tell you who arranged 
some of the material, and he's quite brilliant, was Alan Parsons of the Alan Parsons Project. Alan, I have to say, was one of the most brilliant arrangers I've ever met. Absolute genius arranger. What about Sid Barrett? Oh, well, I never met Sid, but I knew... Well, I, actually, I think I did meet Sid Barrett at a recording session. I was sorry about him. Died. You are friends with Weenie Bopper, though, right? What was the deal on Weenie let me, Bopper? Let me tell you about this. When I recorded Christine, my father wouldn't talk to me for weeks and weeks. And I took this young lady into the studio to write this song, David, David, Donnie, and Michael. I was recording the song I wrote for her. It was about David Casty, Donnie Osmond, and Michael Jackson, who were the rage, teenage rage at the time. I have to tell you, this 10-year-old lady was the most professional artist in a studio I've ever, ever met. She was wonderful. She took direction beautifully. There was no diva, diva antics about her. She was just a, a pleasure to record. A weenie bopper, and that was Rachel Fury? Oh, is that her name? Yes. Yes. She was wonderful. Have you kept up with any of your music industry contacts over the well, years? in Britain, no, because the thing is, I left Britain a long time ago. I left Britain in, what, 1975. And I went back, you know, 10 years ago. I felt like a foreigner. <laughs> uh, but a lot of uh, British expats are in Canada or even in Kelowna, like, or even came to Vancouver, like Long John Baldry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. He was great. I met, uh, I met Long John once. He was a really nice guy, very nice guy. Uh, but I met him in England. I didn't meet him over here. Now, Laurice, you're playing next Friday night at the Emerald in Vancouver with fashionism. Thank you, Josh. Fashionism. I was curious, when did you come to Vancouver exactly? Because, or when did you come to Canada? Because you were, quote, Canada's former number one male disco vocalist. Oh, yes, that's quite true. Um, I came to Canada in 75, and I was top artist in, I think, 76 and 77, or 77 and 78. Would be that those two. No, and um, it was it was terrific. The problem is that my record company hated disco. They were, I mean, I cannot believe they cut their noses off to spite their faces. They didn't like disco. They were all rockers, and I love rock, but boy, they hated disco. Now, was so, that was that Casino Records? It was. Well, it was really A and M Records, and it was A and M I dealt with, and. Uh, the guys at AM, I didn't know what this, uh, I didn't know what this term meant, but, you know, I went to see the A&R guy there who, you know, was running things. And I, I, I just, you know, I hadn't been here in Canada very long. And I said, you know, I said, people are call, calling you a turkey. What exactly does turkey mean? <laughs> I mean, he went white as a sheep and he's gritted his teeth. He wasn't pleased. I suppose that didn't help my cause. <laughs> now, you were, Laurice, Canada's former number one male disco dance vocalist. Who was...
was number two? Who, what were the other disco records and uh, at the know, time? As far as men were, were concerned, I don't recall any Canadian male dance artist. I don't think anybody was doing what I was doing. And I was regarded as doing very progressive stuff for um, disco, particularly with the disco spaceship. Not so much with We Will Make Love, which was an enormous hit, um, but the disco spaceship was regarded as quite progressive at the time. How would you describe the cover pick of We Will Make Love? I haven't seen a cover. I saw a Mexican cover of this woman spread across the cover on We Will Make Love. Now, the disco spaceship, that's a whole different thing. Because the disco spaceship, those are murals from Jimi Hendrix's studio in Greenwich Village. I was there during the blackout. Did you happen while I was recording? Did, uh, so you did record at Electric Lady, Ladyland during the blackout? I certainly did. It was very frightening because all the artists, we all, every all the power went. And do you know they built that studio, Nardwar, on an underground stream, and the water. Uh, when the power failed, the water started rising into the studio. It was frightening. We were all sat in the lobby there. Billy Cobham, the famous drummer, and people like that. We were all sat there in candlelight listening to what was going on outside. When we finally got outside, we actually saw people looting and smashing windows and stealing stuff. So my producer and myself, we went and sat in the cafe opposite uh, as a sandwich and watched the looting from the window. It was incredible. It really happened. It did, really happened like that. Did anybody try to break into Electric Ladyland? Well, they would have had a hard job because, I mean, that door was very, very thick. <laughs> now, you were on Casino Records. You said mm -hmm. not necessarily, but really, you were on Casino, and that was started by Terry Jacks, a Westerner. Well... I never knew Terry, but I heard what happened with Casino Records, but it's a, it's a legal thing. I don't know whether I should mention it or not. It's really, uh, it was, you know, Susan Jacks' wife um, apparently uh, was having an affair with the owner of Casino Records, and Terry Jacks found out about it. So it was a very, it was a very awkward uh, situation. There are many comments on your videos, and again, we are speaking here to Larice, who was playing next Friday night at the Emerald in Vancouver. There are many comments on your videos, etc. Dude, this is amazing while you're high. The beat is amazing, and the bass is orgasmic. <laughs> Which song was that? I think it was The Spaceship. The Disco Spaceship, who was the band, or who was the band exactly in 77 that you recorded at oh, Hendrix's? Oh, the Disco Spaceship was entirely the best pick of New York, uh, of New York uh, musicians. I didn't know any of them. They were the top New York musicians, the very top, uh, and a full orchestra as well. We had everything on that track, everything, uh, a 50-piece orchestra. It was unbelievable. I mean, it was... <laughs> uh, and and, a, and a, string, a steel band as well. So on the, the record. So the label did invest in you, right? Oh, yes. But um, 
Oh, yes, yes, they did. I mean, it was a very expensive, the whole album that I, that I was recording in New York uh, was a very, very, very expensive album. It was never released. You know why? Casino <laughs> uh, Records didn't pay the bill. So what happened to the tapes? Um, they suspended my recording contract. Um, Casino Records, uh, my producer had the tapes, and Casino Records demanded it back. Uh, he had to give them uh, the tapes back. My producer nearly had um, a nervous breakdown, and uh, he never spoke to me again after that. It was very sad. He said, a, he said to me, Ralph Murphy's the producer, he said, you know what? He said, there's a jinx on you. He said, you're absolutely brilliant, but there's a jinx on you. I had enough. I felt terrible. I mean, you know, there was nothing I could do. Uh, I had to leave Canada. But people can see the jinx. Larice, next Friday night at <laughs> the Emerald in Vancouver with fashionism. And winding up here, Larice, you are big in Spain. Like, we will make love. There is like a Spanish and English version. And is it making love to a man or a woman? Uh, either way, you know how uh, Donna Summer said she, uh, she sat down in the studio and they put all the lights down low when she did Love to Love You Baby? It was very similar for me. I just did, I just did my thing, you know, and it, was, it could be whoever. That is used in Spanish immersion? Oh, uh, you're kidding me. No, I heard that, for what? instance, we will make love is used in Spanish immersion. Was there oh a Spanish... Oh, my God. Well, you know it was number one in Mexico. But the thing... And I, you know... Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> That's incredible. Was there a Spanish version? Uh, well, I'll tell you how the Spanish version came about. It's quite funny. Um, we were staying at the Mayflower Hotel, my producer and myself, while we were recording in New York. And um, I said to Ralph, I said, you know, I'd really like to do a Spanish version of this song as well as a French version. I said, but I don't know any Spanish words. So we went down to breakfast, and this Hispanic lady was dishing out the food, and I said... Could you do me a favor? Could you tell me what this word means in Spanish and this word and that word? And I wrote them all down phonetically and I used them in the studio. <laughs> You're the first person who's ever asked that. <laughs> Laurice, Spanish. Uh, and also, Laurice, you wrote a children's book? Oh, yes, I've written a, a few. Yes. Maya and the Dinosaur from Mars. Yes. Uh, and also, I've written an adult um, women's uh, uh, adult women's uh, novel. Uh, I've not had published yet. But in the publishing world, it's like the record world. You know, it's who you know, not what you know. Now, Larice, you've been on quite a few record labels. What can you say about these various record labels? Like, for instance, I'm just going to run through them here. RCA and Amherst Records in Harlem, home of Jackie DeShannon and the Stylistics. Yep. Well, let me tell you about Amherst Records. Amherst Records, they released 
We Will Make Love on Amherst Records in America three times. And there again, they didn't want to play it because they felt it was too black and too gay. But um, they, uh, I went to Amherst Records. I met the, met the gentleman, who, the, uh, the owner and everything, very nice people. And uh, they really tried to, they really had, they really believed in the record. But I will tell you this, by the way, I forgot to tell you. And We Will Make Love, that was remixed by Tom Milton, who is the founder, the inventor of the 12-inch disco record, vinyl record. Did you know that? No. Oh, yes. Tom Milton, I, I owe a lot to Tom Milton because... Tom Milton remixed the record, put it out as a 12-inch, and the rest is history. I mean, he was incredible. You were also he was, on... He was responsible for many, many hits, but he, he invented the 12-inch disco single. How did you get him? I was very lucky. Um, I think my producer sent him a copy, or Amherst Records must have sent him a copy of the original record, and uh, he just remixed it. And um, I have to tell you, at first, I thought, well, you know, and then, you know, I've got used to it. I love it now, of course. It's on, by the way, it's on my CD, Dance, Dance, Dance. I have an album of all my disco, uh, disco material, a lot of unreleased tracks. It's a fabulous. I'm very proud of it. It's called Dance, Dance, Dance. Are you going to be bringing that next Friday night to the Emerald? Bringing it? What do you mean? Are you going to be selling it next Friday night at the Emerald with Fashionism, Lorise? No, I don't. <clears throat> no. Um, I can bring some copies if, if people are interested. I think they would be. It's amazing all the different genres that you have done, Lorise. Like, for instance, going down the list, you are having, like, rhythmic adult contemporary, CHR rhythmic, light AC, hot AC, electronic, retro disco, disco house, house disco, NAC, classic disco, dance, smooth jazz, and adult Ad album alternative AAC. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, um, it's because I did not want to be put in a box. In North America, in particular, they like to put you, Nadwa, in various genres. And I'm a rebel, I suppose. I don't. I like to challenge myself. I don't like to make the same album every time, you know. And I like to do different, different. And I, I learned uh, very early. My icon is Dusty Springfield. Dusty Springfield, they don't know this because um, the, her BBC shows were never kept. They were deleted, most of them. She could sing anything. And she taught me that I should sing anything I want if I put my mind to it. So I mastered every single style out there. You were also on, Larice, Stud and Hardcore Records. Yes, I was. <laughs> and That's the hotline. Anything you'd like to say about Stud and Hardcore Records? Yes, Stud and Hardcore Records was um, my, uh, my friend Dan Aronson. He was my producer in the late, well, in that series in the 70s, uh, late 70s, 80s. And uh, he, um, he died, unfortunately, a few years ago. 
Um, and he really had faith in me. He managed me for a few years, and we became great friends. He's a really, really nice guy. And uh, he had a lot of pizzazz. You remind me a bit of him, actually. <laughs> And we are speaking to Larice live on CITR Radio. And Larice is playing The Emerald, The Emerald in Vancouver with Fashionism next Friday night. Rock Hard, what year was Rock Hard released? Oh, well, it was never released. That was one of the songs on uh, Volume 1 that was never released. I, re- I put my money into these recording sessions. And I never could get them released. You know, it wasn't like today where you can just press a record, you know, and, and do it yourself. It was very expensive in those days. And so I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I mean, I loved the sessions I did. And I think Rock Hard is a really, it's a really good track. What year was it recorded? Oh, I would think about 74. It was before I left England. It's an amazing track. And it made me think, when did you first say fuck on a record? Oh, a first one? Well, it would be on my gay bar, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh-huh, yes, on my gay bar record. So it took all those years for you to say fuck? Well, I don't know. You know, when I first came to Canada, I was like Queen Victoria getting off the plane. And... Uh, my roommate took me to see um, one of Divine's films, you know? You remember Divine? Oh, yes. I was in such shock. I didn't speak to him for two weeks, but it sort of weaned me off the Queen Victoria syndrome very quickly. <laughs> you know, I never, ever said a swear word ever before that. I was a very good little boy. Did the public always know that you were gay? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure they did, you know. I think they did. Well, the public, you mean the people in the industry did. I don't know about the general public. I wasn't exposed enough, I don't think, to the general public. Um, although they might have thought so because, I mean, I had an incredible... Um, vocal range at the time. I mean, I really, I really could hit those notes. Uh, maybe most men didn't. Larice, has gay gone too mainstream? Is it just like family entertainment now? Has what? Has gay gone too mainstream? But what do you think about gay rights now? Like, has it gone um, too mainstream? Like, this pride parades, there's Disneyland. Has it gone mainstream? Well, yes, it's gone mainstream in a way. Let me explain. I have a few uh, quibbles about it, and that's because a lot of the gay pride stuff now has become very ageist. It's like if you're over 30, forget it. I mean, I'd love to have performed at Vancouver Gay Pride this weekend, but they don't want me. So, you know, I tried last year. They just don't want me. It's the same with Kelowna Gay Pride. I haven't had much support from the gay community at all. I do have to tell you that. Ooh. I'm disappointed. But yes, it's mainstream. They want family entertainment. Uh, one of the reasons I was told they didn't want me to perform here is because the children, the children, they wanted to protect the children. 
Well, you know, considering what the children watch on TV, I think my stuff is just lame compared to what they're watching on TV and hearing. You, Ridiculous. You sing about white sugar. Was that an answer to... No, wild, wild sugar. Oh, I thought it was white sugar, and it was oh, an answering, answering to the Rolling Stones' brown sugar. <laughs> well, I suppose now I could change it, couldn't I? That's a good idea. <laughs> and but, you, you know, I just love, I love writing songs. I just love it. You eventually moved to Toronto, and you saw some punk rock, but you can't remember the name of the band that you saw. Like, you did punk type music in 73 and you were reintroduced to it seeing some punk in Toronto but you can't remember the name of the band? No I don't but they were they were incandescent they were absolutely incredible I mean it blew me away I don't think I've ever seen a performance in my life like that one ever I don't even know whether Johnny Rotten could do as well as this band did I mean they were sensational you eventually moved as well to Hollywood. Who did you manage in Hollywood? Oh, I don't remember their names, but... <laughs> um, uh, there were quite a few um, male artists, about four of them. I managed about four or, four or five, and uh, they were all different, but they were all pop. You know, they all had good voices. They all had talent. The problem was that they loved sitting by the swimming pool waiting to be discovered. That's not how it happens. <laughs> in fact, I, uh, I fired them all in the end. I got fed up with it. And uh, one of them had a real meltdown by the swimming pool. I can't believe it. He couldn't believe I was firing him. I mean, it was quite funny. And now you're in Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. Yes, it's beautiful. It's very hot, by the way. We've got the air conditioner on. It's boiling. It's about, what, 33, 34 degrees here right now. And we will have some rewards for listeners that have listened this far to the interview because you are playing next Friday night at the Emerald with Fashionism, and we have a little reward for listeners. And right now, we are going to end this interview with a bunch of tunes we're going to play as much as we can of I'm going to smash your face in. Big Boy, what can you say about these songs, just quickly? Big Boy, and as well, Spaceship Lover. Well, we kind of covered that, but Hot Hot Malibu Nights, and and, um, we... And Brokeback Mountain. So what can you say about those particular tracks? Well, it's, it's been described, I think, quite accurately as a sexual calling card. It's something I always wanted to do, and I'm glad I got it out of my system. I don't know whether i do it again, but I'm, I'm, really, I'm really very proud of the record. Um, and um, I, I just hope that straight people like it as much as gay, gay people might. You know, um, that's quite important to me. But I'm very, very glad I did it. I'm really proud of the album. And I hope you enjoy it, Nardwa. And I hope you will come to my show. Will you come to my show? And people can check out your show next Friday night at the Emerald as well. And I should say, people can check you out live. They can make the show on video. I love that you thank, like, JPEGs. You thank JPEGs at the end of the video. I think, Jake. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, you have to. I mean, you, you know, um, the first, the 
the very first video I launched was taken down by YouTube because I didn't credit the people at the end. You have to, these days, and this is a, a word to the wise here, you have to credit everything you do on the video. If you take somebody else's material, even a photo, you have to credit it. That's important. So we are going to hear, I'm going to smash your face in, and Big Boy, and a whole bunch of other tunes, including Boston City. Is there anything you'd like to add to the people out there at all, Maurice? Yes, I, I would like you all to come to my performance, enjoy it. I'm very thrilled to come to Vancouver, and my aim is to please. I just want to entertain the audience and put a smile on your faces. Take you out of yourselves for an hour. Why should people care about Larice? Why should people care? Why should people care? Because I believe I've been doing something that a lot of people, most people, haven't done. And that's, I've done it my way. I've done it, and I've done it for the best intentions. I've wanted people to really enjoy an incredible range of music. And also, um, I really feel that I, I did further the gay cause up to a certain extent, and introduce it to the mainstream. And we have some tickets, a plus one, to see Larice next Friday night at the Emerald, 604-822-2487. It's 604-822-2487 to go see Larice next week live at the Emerald. Well, thanks for your time, Larice. Keep on rocking. Uh, phone in, please. 604-822-2487. 604-UBC-CITR. And right now, here is I'm Gonna Smash Your Face. Thanks for your time, Larice. Keep on rocking in the free world. And do do loot do 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 <laughs>
face in there. I said, uh, I'm gonna smash your face in there, baby. You see, uh, I'm gonna smash your face in there, because I, I feel so lonesome tonight. I Big, big, big 
such a big boy. Yeah, he's a big, 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 big boy. Fucking hot. Cause he's a big, 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 big boy. Stick it in the ammo. Yeah, he's a big, 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 big boy. Ooh.